Welcome to ABA on Tap, where our goal is to find the best recipe to brew the smoothest, coldest, and best tasting ABA around. I'm Dan Lowry with Mike Rubio, and join us on our journey as we look back into the ingredients to form the best concoction of ABA on Tap. In this podcast, we will talk about the history of the ABA brew, how much to consume to achieve the optimum buzz while not getting too drunk, and the recommended pairings to bring to the table. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and always analyze responsibly. All right, all right. And welcome yet again to another installment of ABA on Tap. I am your co-host, Mike Rubio, along with Mr. Daniel Lowry. Daniel, how you doing, sir? Doing great. Glad to be back with the consistency that we were hoping for at the beginning of the year. Good to see you, my man. We're on a good streak. We're on a good streak. Let's keep it going. So we've got something that's very, very near and dear to my heart today. Um, It's hard to believe that we haven't covered this yet, but we have not. And it integrates a whole... I'm sure we've mentioned it at least a hundred (laughs) times. I I, I can't help myself most of the time, right? So we did spend some time on joint attention, and that gave us a whole lot of other content to explore, uh, thanks to your uh, great analysis there of of those particular procedures. And this is related to joint attention, also related in a way to our Strange Technologies episode. I don't believe we mentioned this particular technology or procedure in that episode, but it fits the criterion of something that um, is almost synonymous with ABA these days. If anybody that's uh, doing in-home intervention and you're doing some level of systematic programming, you've probably said, do this, and then <laughs> uh, you know, proceeded to present some model of some action with uh, your motor movement and or an object included. And well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, no one can do anything without the SD do this, right? This. Yes. What's this? That. We're going to talk about that today. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So uh, very, very commonly known as nonverbal imitation, NVI. Again, anybody who's ever done Oof. this line of work has heard those three letters, that acronym, that acronym well, with or with, you know, NVI with object, NVI without object. And what it's mainly referencing here is the idea of imitation, which we know is very important in learning. I literally just reviewed a report on Friday that had that goal, and I cringed when I read that goal based on my interactions with uh, with you and this uh, this concept over the last five years. So, uh, very excited to explore it. Also, I know the last week or last couple of weeks we've done things that were a little bit my soapbox, and I was very uh, happy to step on it with the parent training and things of that nature with the product and de-escalation. Very happy to step down, allow you to step on your soapbox because I know this is a, something that you're very passionate about brought to our team, and we've seen a lot of benefits clinically from this. So very, very excited. I was going to mention, I think we do well here on this podcast, and we've gotten better at sort of allowing the other to take the lead. And what's really, really interesting for me is that the things we talk about have become so well integrated in our day-to-day work that you can take the lead, or as you say, get on your soapbox. And I am very, very well familiar with what you're going to talk about. We can just sit back and converse. So I've got sort of a formalized presentation I've done before on this idea of reciprocal imitation, not nonverbal imitation. And they're not unrelated, but we'll explore that a little further. So I do have sort of my formalized presentation, but I'm hoping this becomes more of a conversation again, given that we've been doing this actively for the better part of four years now. um, And in a sense, in replacement or as a really strong adjunct or an overwhelming adjunct to the idea of nonverbal imitation. So... I'm going to say this now, and I'll say it again. By no means is anybody opposed to the SD do this. We're just going to expand its exclusivity. So the idea that if your only SD for this, these imitation programs is do this, we will lend some new ideas for you to do <laughs> that and this today. No, it's this, This not or that. that. Right, 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 right. So <clears throat> before we kick this off, or as we kick this off, I want to say that all of this, all of this, <laughs> and that, and that, that we're going to discuss can be found in Ingersoll and Schreibman's 2006 publication entitled "Teaching Reciprocal Imitation Skills to Young Children 
with autism using a naturalistic behavioral approach and looking at the effects on language, pretend play, and joint attention. Okay, and this is in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. Um, and again, back from, from 2006. So not a new idea. Uh, certainly not something I invented, but I think that what we've been able to contribute to this notion of reciprocal imitation is our own naturalistic implementation. Something that along with our joint attention procedures we've discussed, and this idea of us contingently imitating, doing some linguistic mapping, doing it all under the guise or the motivating operation of play, now we bring in the imitation part, almost assuring that our clients, the kiddos we're working with, are not jointly attending. So they're actually prepared <laughs> to sense and perceive the stimulus that we're presenting in our SD, and then hopefully be able to imitate it toward uh, building language skills, building play skills, all these things that we've discussed are sort of a soup recipe, right, uh, developmentally speaking. What I really appreciate about all this is that this is no longer, although it's presented as a laboratory intervention, what we're really talking about here is good, solid, early childhood, developmentally based, child-directed, play-oriented practice. So it levels the playing field. I know I like to use that mantra here on ABA on tap, but I do appreciate that. So now our treatment is, is just naturalistic in every sense. We are now just interacting with a child, and it just so happens that this particular child may have so-called deficits in this skill set or that domain or however you want to conceptualize it. Yeah, so um, with this this process, um, is this one that we need the uh, IKEA table and chair and, and blank room to, to implement? Is it ABA if you don't have those things, Dan? I, I, I don't I don't know. That's why I'm wondering. You, you mentioned lab. Pro, it's developed in the lab. And in the lab, we have the IKEA table and the chair. And you can't do ABA without it, correct? So if you happen to have that table and chair, good for you. You might have a nice uh, child-oriented space. Now, let's say that that child is not sitting in that chair. What? You can still do this procedure and not necessarily wrestle them down physically or, sorry, prompt them physically in order to sit in that chair and be able to, to see these things. So again, under the guise of or, or the uh, umbrella of play, the motivating operation of play, they can do this if they're standing, standing on their head, sitting, lying on their side, as long as their visual and or auditory attention is maybe focused on you or something else that is lending an SD to be imitated this can be done. Whoa. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That, that's amazing. But that would certainly be a minus for the following instructions and the attending goals and things like that. Of course. Of course. <laughs> no Ikea table or chair required, at least not for this particular set of procedures we'll talk about today. And again, and, and you know, we, we, we joke around. We were speaking facetiously of here. Of course, of course. But it, it's such a standard, and it was such yep. a standard that, that uh, was so prevalent when we first got into the field. Again, to the point of uh, the suggestion, the premise that we might physically prompt a child to stay in that chair in order to deliver said SD, uh, knowing that there's a bunch of assumptions there that we will be violating today and a bunch of assumptions that we violated in other episodes and saying, you know, we, we standardize, we analyze the practice or the procedure to look this way, and it doesn't have to look that way. It just has to hit certain key elements, right? So in this case, we're jointly attending. The child is looking and or listening more or less in your direction where you're able to now demonstrate something. And oddly enough, it starts with the idea of contingent imitation. Right? So just to recap what that is, this is us as the professionals, as the RBTs, as the BCBAs, now in interacting with a child and within reason and logic, imitating the things they're doing, both physically with objects and or vocally. Yep. Right? So the idea is you are imitating the child. Why? One reason and, well, actually two reasons. Number one is you can't imitate unless you're paying close attention. Yep. So yes, I might even ask my staff to put the data aside during this time. I did. I said it. I said uh, it. I might be in trouble. There might be some of you out there. Who are we going to miss a trial? We, we might miss a trial. Yes. <laughs> no. So you pay attention. Put the data aside. You imitate them within reason, right? Sights, 
uh, things they're doing, actions, sounds they're making, vocalizations. Sometimes people might feel awkward in terms of uh, imitating vocalizations outright. So I say, we'll put in real words contextually in there that match the intonation. Um, you know, so if a child's like, oh, 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 you like that particular toy. Yeah, I like it too. So you're responding, you're imitating, you're matching or imitating some level of inflection there. Sure. As, as again, at the same time, imitating actions a little bit. So this means if the child walks toward a certain object, you walk in that direction too. If they crouch down to look at it, you crouch down to look at it as well. Again, everything within reason. You're not going to imitate things that are dangerous or uh, you know, overly exerting onto the uh, surrounding environment or that maybe the plant parents are going to find uh, displeasing, but you're doing your best to imitate their actions in an effort to make sure you're paying attention and then maybe more importantly to make sure that the child begins to notice you. They start seeing and hearing themselves back. So what you're saying is we're really focusing on what we're doing and we're making the therapy dynamic from the RBT behavioral interventionist, whoever's working with the child's um, situation. I, I think so often we, we present the same SD in the same way. So in ABA, we look at behavior as a product of the environment, right? But for some reason, so often we present the same environment and expect a different behavior. We say, touch your nose, touch your nose, touch your nose, and the kid doesn't touch their nose. And then we prompt them and then we say, touch your nose again. But what you're saying is let's dynamically figure out other ways that we can get them to independently touch their nose without presenting the entire, the same SD at the same way every single time. And I think that's really valuable. Um, I, I said the, the table and chairs thing kind of facetiously, but I think, um, you know, there's a larger point behind that. And that you mentioned the reciprocal imitation comes from just normal early childhood development. And I, I bring up the table and chairs to just show how far sometimes we've gone, like you mentioned, with strange technologies of ABA from just typical early childhood development. So I wanted to highlight that um, kind of facetiously, but the, the underlying tones there, I think, are important. You bring up a really, really excellent point, and I don't know if you intended to, but I think there's a notion of standardization here that we have to credit ourselves for historically, right? Sure. Now... To your point, it was our downfall at the same time. <laughs> we became so standardized <clears throat> that we sort of lost the elements of ABA or behavior modification somewhere in their better yet learning theory. The idea that, yes, repetition is important to learning. How you conjure up that repetition, though, clearly is going to have some level of impact on the learner's engagement their satiety and or their deprivation. The value of reinforcement that might be available to them, given how motivated they are just concurrently being reinforced by the activity that you're engaged in. And this is where the idea of, of play as the motivating operation is of utmost importance, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me, we are so systematic and methodological as we should be in the philosophy of science of ABA that sometimes we will task analyze things like play sure. and put them into a sequence. Now, that's not incorrect in and of itself, but the way we were doing it in this sort of unitary singular fashion, sure. this is the only way this game is played. This is the only way I can present colors to you is through this matching folder or whatever, uh, you know, teach style um, uh, activity might have made its way into your programming. Sure. Uh, so in that sense, I think we limited the the variability, the variety with which we were willing to engage in. And then we wondered why generality was a problem. Sure. <laughs> yeah. We Like you said, we overtask analyze these things. Think of the, the games that we've taught these, these kids with turn taking, right? And we have to break down, well, what do you do? You take a turn and you say my turn and then you say your turn and then you take a turn. And how much time was wasted and playing a game of guess who or battleship or whatever with every time I have to say my turn. Now you get to go your turn. You get to go and how just energy, how much energy that took for a lot of our clients. And now they're not even playing the game because the focus is on the turn them vocalizing the turn taking, which is an important skill. But like you said, because we had to task analyze it so we could, you know, proliferate it uh, on a on a greater scale to other people and explain it to them in a way that could be easily imitated by those people. Uh, hopefully reciprocally imitated by those people. Um, we lost the whole context of everything we're doing. And I think you made a really, really good point too when you said using the environment as the motivating operation. That's where the do this, I think, struggles um, and almost circumvents that. 
because now the environment isn't the motivating operation. Now the SD is the do this. And we're taking these kids that a lot of times, individuals that a lot of times really lack environmental awareness and maybe go into a room and aren't really pointing out and tacting and things like that. So they struggle with an environmental awareness. And instead of us saying, let's show you all these things in your environment that might be motivating and might spark your interest to then initiate a man with us, we're going to say, no, the only thing you can pay attention to is us and this singular SD of do this. Well, and, and if you think about how stripped down then the actions became, how decontextualized of course. the idea of this became. So you alluded to it earlier, you know, uh, do this. And now the person's touching their nose as the visual part of that SD or that instruction. Well, what's the purpose of touching your nose? Well, within the context of maybe an to imitation. To hit a trial game, on an SD sheet. That's about it, right? So maybe if you're talking about body parts, maybe if... Uh, you were now playing Simon Says. Think of the context of a game of Simon Says versus just this blank, do this. Um, now, while, while we sort of lend some pretty harsh criticism there, I think it is important to also realize or give credit to why such a procedure might have been born out of a laboratory experimental setting, right? Well, because you have to standardize that SD and... Likely, I can't verify this. I'd have to go back into the research uh, and, and some pretty early Lovas work in the, I think, mid-60s, um, where I believe most of this stuff comes from, uh, this, this idea of do this comes from. And what you're trying to do there in, in standard practice or in a research setting is separate the visual stimulus now from the idea of language. Sure. So if I'm telling you the touch your nose and I'm touching my nose and then you touch your nose... I can't necessarily separate whether for some reason you understood the statement receptively or you're motorically imitating my action. Sure. So from a research perspective, separating those two variables is a beautiful thing. What a lovely control. Somewhere by just dragging it from that lab into the living room, yeah, we lost a little spark. We lost a little bit of the the, the natural feel, the interactive feel of playing with a child and now we're running trials. We're no longer playing. So to your point, that motivating operation is lost, yep. right? And, and that's where the do this, I think, is contextually relevant if there is a motivating operation. And what I mean by that is if I come to you and I'm like, hey, Mike, um, I need to change my oil in my car. Can you show me how to do that? And you're like, hey, okay, this is what you do first. And this is what you do second. And you break that down. I had the motivating operation. Or if I bring and I'm like, hey, Mike, show me how to use this app on my phone. And you're like, okay, do this and then do this and do this. That, that makes sense. But if I'm just sitting in a room and you're like, do this out of nowhere, then I didn't have a motivating operation to, to listen to you for whatever reason. And if you're doing that, and historically in ABA, the motivating operation was something completely artificial. I was touching my nose and then receiving the iPad or a high five or something like that. So completely non-related. So those, those things never contextualized back into anything that was going to be functional for that individual's life. It just was able to give us a target that we could go to an insurance company or whoever and say, yeah, look, this child can touch their nose. Look, do this. And they can touch their nose. But like you said, never generalized into anything that was meaningful to their life. And therefore, almost a violation of the first dimension of ABA applied in social significance because they weren't using it for anything socially significant in their life. And it speaks to the aspect of compliance, which I know we've, we've alluded to here in terms of moving away from that whole notion very quickly. That's what it is. We've pre-selected targets, right, for most of these programs. And yes, they're targets that are related to milestones, so they're very logically selected. It's not like we've missed the point there. But within the framework, in terms of the motivating operation, again, back to your point, yeah, it's completely decontextualized now, right? Um, and, it, and it comes from this idea of, of a structured approach, which is something that I, I'll open up the discussion on now and, and maybe we'll allude to later. We like that notion of instructional control, the idea that we've structured the session. And what that ultimately means is that as the adult, you're directing all the action. You've pre-selected the stimuli. You've pre-selected the targets based on milestones. Again, not incorrect, but largely decontextualized now because the child has no uh, collaboration, no effort to, to let you know what they might be interested in imitating and or engaging with. And, and we use that all under the umbrella of structured. This is a structured approach. What we really mean is adult-directed approach. And what 
gets a little bit uncomfortable, something that we talk a lot about here, something that joint attention and those procedures fall right into is this idea of child directedness, right? Especially for younger, early intervention, younger kids, early intervention, the idea that they're moving around, they're not naturally sitting for long periods of time. We have to develop that sustained attention. This fits in beautifully because they're doing something. They're playing with something within reason, again, that we can make safe begin to imitate them contingently now towards this notion of reciprocal imitation. And really quickly, what that means is, you know, you're sliding a car back and forth on the carpet. I grab my car. I start sliding that car back and forth on the carpet. The note at the moment you notice me do it. Uh, I wait for you to do it again. And then I follow suit. We do that back and forth a couple of times. And then I find my mark and my moment when you're staring at me. And now I make the car jump. Now, what happens if the child doesn't follow suit? Well, you still have the option to prompt. But what I prefer is go ahead and go back to imitating them. And then once they notice you, you come right back out to presenting something they can imitate. Hence the idea of reciprocal imitation. And your favorite part of all here, Dan, is you can actually say, I'm rolling the car. Now the car is jumping. You can use actual nouns and verbs in your Whoa. phrasing of the SD. Wow. And you can still reserve do this for some later, but you can you can actually incorporate other verbal aspects of the SD that so, actually label the actions. <laughs> so for individuals that maybe have a language delay that are learning developmental or that are learning language, we can actually give them language that might be relevant to what they're doing in that moment because jumping uh, because do this doesn't mean jumping. So jumping would be much more contextually appropriate than them imitating do this. Exactly. I'll do you wow. one better. Let's say you're, again, for the example with the car, are there other relevant vocal stimuli that would be that would fit in there? What sure. about a vroom vroom? Um, you can do it. You can do or a zoom here. zoom if you're Mazda. You can do a zoom zoom if you're Mazda. You can jump and go, All of these are now valid verbal vocal stimuli that you can model toward their future imitation, right? And if they don't do it, I mean, so if a child doesn't do an echoic, hard to prompt that one anyway without sure. another verbal prompt, right? So you go right back to that dance. So it becomes this dance between contingent imitation, you doing what the child is doing within reason, as you also linguistically map, commentate their actions, your actions, talk about other SDs in the environment. Imagine that. We've said it here before. We're not the only as we're not the only source of SDs in a child's environment. Say what? Even in a one-to-one session, there are sounds and sights abound all around them. <laughs> wow, which is probably going to help generality for when we're not there. <clears throat> Imagine that, especially if you can include the parents now in this game of imitation and rolling the cars around and making them do different things. So, it's not you know, eons beyond what we've done before, but we're naturalizing and contextualizing the application of imitation, knowing how important it is to learning. And then for our purposes here on the podcast, not knowing that it's being posited after the, or along with joint attention, along with our own imitation of the child's um, uh, actions and sounds, along with our own linguistic mapping, all under the umbrella and the motivating operation of play and child directed play at that. Right. So sure. imagine this, you spend plenty of time doing this cognitive uh, or, or contingent imitation and linguistic mapping with a child, which makes you pay attention. Yep. You might put the data away for a little while. Yikes. I pay know attention to the kid and not the data. I know it scares some clinicians, but I promise as you keep watering that seed, something will sprout for you to measure as I like to say. Um, so that's the idea is you're doing these, uh, active procedures and then waiting for those collateral behaviors to come back such that you can measure them easily. And then, you know, we'll maybe talk about this in a later episode, but the idea that now we can even choose to truncate our data a little bit, ensure that things are happening a certain amount of times, and then put the data away and just make them keep happening, especially if it's interactive but, play. But they didn't happen if it's not recorded in the data, right? Right, right. So the idea that now you can truncate it, say, Eight occurrences, knowing that we were looking traditionally at eight need, out of ten in 10. any given program. You have right. to have ten. Well, sometimes <laughs> ten out of ten. <laughs> However many times you want to make it happen, you can make it happen and now put that data aside and just play. And this is very, very relevant to um, 
early childhood program, sure. early childhood intervention. Um, I think there is certainly a way to translate it uh, into work with older clients too. It would look a little bit different, but the notion that you might reciprocally imitate or contingently imitate somebody is going to be a premise that will apply across the board. You have to be ready not to be socially irrelevant or impertinent, right? If you're mimicking somebody, that could be insulting or a little bit aggravating. But the idea that you are even repeating somebody's question back or words back to them in an interrogative form, imitating that back, letting them know that you're paying attention to them such that they may pay attention to you in some near future. Yes, that's that's a great example of authoritativeness, not authoritarianism. Uh, as we talked about in a previous episode, you, you brought up an interesting point when you talk about labeling what an individual is doing. So instead of saying, do this, saying, oh, you're rolling the car or zoom, right. zoom or something like that. And as you brought up this kind of fade from nonverbal imitation to reciprocal imitation is, is how we label things. That obviously took a little while to, to kind of catch on. But I think some of the things that you really, when you when we were making the switch, you articulated very nicely is, well, what exactly is non-vocal about this situation? Because you're giving a vocal SD do this. And if the child vocalizes something back and we're always trying to work on vocal skills, is that are we going to punish the child for that? And if a child has developing language, wouldn't it be better if we actually presented the antecedent that's relevant to the uh, behavior than some arbitrary thing do this? Um, so I think that was really, as, as you explained it to me, and I started to kind of really understand your thought process there was really enlightening. Another thing you mentioned um, was the the structure and the adult directed and how a lot of times we look at structured and it's almost synonymous with adult directed. I think this really highlights when we um, collaborate with schools. I've been um, in a few IEPs recently. And it's very interesting because I think I see this on on two two sides of that coin. One is that... Oftentimes, schools are very structured, i.e. adult-directed, and the teacher gives an instruction and the kids have to follow it. So there's not a lot of um, you know, individualization or following what the kid wants to do, which I kind of understand. And the flip side of this is sometimes our advice is either not applicable or almost taken um, combatively by the school because a lot of times our advice is based on our structure and our adult directiveness, which does not transfer into the school structure or the school's adult directiveness. So again, that just kind of shows how a lot of these, these environments can be so authoritarian and so adult directed. Um, what I will uh, pass it back to you, and uh, I think further clarification could be useful, is if you could clarify the difference between contingent imitation and reciprocal imitation. Ah, that's great. That's great. So contingent imitation, you're going to look at that just from the clinician or adult's perspective in the sense that you're observing the child and you're imitating their actions and their sounds specifically. And again, the main pre- the two main points for that is that in order to imitate somebody, you have to be watching and listening almost exclusively to them. Yes. Right? The other part there is that by imitating somebody, both vocally and or motorically, you can almost assure that they will lend their attention now back to you jointly, meaning they will likely shift their gaze and or auditory attention in your direction. Okay. Okay. At which point now you're ready to make the shift into the reciprocity. So I'm imitating you. And as soon as I think that I've got enough of your visual and or auditory attention, whatever might um, uh, better fit the situation, am I going to make a sound for you to imitate? So the echoic fits in here nicely, sure. too. We're going from echoic <clears throat> to tax. Am I, go, am I doing now a mortar action for you to imitate? Because if it's just a sound, then maybe you don't have to be looking at me. I just have to be imitating your sounds back to you, and then when there's a nice break, I make a change in that sound. So the idea is that by contingently imitating somebody, you get their attention, you notice them exclusively, you get their attention, and then you start presenting stimuli for them to imitate either vocal and or uh, motoric in nature. So I hope that might clarify yes. that. Yes, so with the contingent imitation, it's almost an echoic. They're rolling the car, you're rolling the car. They're jumping, they're jumping. With reciprocal imitation, you're presenting novel actions that are relevant to the thing that they're doing, but different than what they're currently doing. That, and I like that you said novel, right? Because it starts with the idea that it's you're doing what they're doing. So anything that you present after that could be seen as novel, 
right? But as soon as they start imitating you, yep. now you've got two actions that you can go back to with regard to contingent and or reciprocal imitation. So I'm so glad you said that because it really builds on itself as opposed to this idea that, again, from a more laboratory approach and an approach of statistical analysis with things like trial types in discrete trial, you might be stuck on roll the car for three months, right? So this presents a much more dynamic format with which to take actions that the child is already demonstrating in their repertoire and then begin to build that repertoire knowing that every time you add one to that selection of actions and or sounds, you now have something to go back to to contingently imitate as you try to present something novel to that repertoire. So I know that, that was a, there was a lot of back and forth. There. I hope I yeah. made sense there, but it was exciting to hear you vocalize that because that's, that's the whole notion here, right? And it does. It does take away that idea of, of the authoritarianism makes it much more of an interaction in the sense that I haven't come in here with pre-selected targets, pre-selected actions. I'm looking at you to see what it is you can do. And then from that, I will take logical steps to expand and vary on those motions or those sounds such that they might already be in your repertoire, right? So if you're rolling a car, you know, along the ground, the idea that you might be able to roll it up the wall, that's right in grasp. Sure. Now, right. Or crash it into the wall. Right. And then how many of us and how many of us might have picked that target initially without seeing the child play at all? Maybe, you know, the people that have a very extensive target list, but then now to think that you're going to implement that into the criterion mastery criteria of trial types you're going to have a very unenriched, very, very stale environment, if you will. It's no longer play. Of it, course. It's trials. It's drilling, yep. right? Um, so I think one of the, the issues with, you know, historical, how we've presented these things is that Lovas did a great job of showing that individuals with autism could learn, of course. Um, and sometimes we look at individuals on the spectrum and say, because they were not able to learn in areas where they're uh, neurotypical, maybe as we would call them, peers are able to learn. Maybe they have a cognitive delay and need more repetition, more trials. That could be one answer. So if their their peers learn the color red after the teacher presenting it five times, maybe the kids we work with need it 50 times. Or maybe it was because they weren't attending to the instruction and didn't care about the color red. So maybe they could learn it within the five times. So as you were saying, um, like contextualizing it back to the, um, the roll car, like in, in DTT, right? We might've had to do it for three months just because we only got 2% of their attention each time we presented it. So we'd have to do it 50 times to get a hundred percent of their attention. Whereas if we could get 80% of their attention right off the bat, maybe we only have to do it four or five or six times and they've got it. So we can still get to the, the end goal just so much more efficiently based on motivation, based on kind of following their lead versus making sure that we have enough data and enough empirical evidence to say we presented a trial so we can show it to somebody. That, that's really, really well put. I, you covered so much ground there. I, I want to grab onto a couple of pieces. It's for sure the difference, our insistence on quantification, which I think is very valid, but then taking that into uh, a more of a social validity. The idea that if I'm, in a, if I'm a five-year-old and I'm in a scenario with, with three, four other same age peers, I don't have to roll the car 10 times after a certain SD. I just have to roll it a few times and then I'm in the mix, baby. <laughs> I'm playing. I got some peers. And then all I need to make sure that I can imitate some of the things they're doing, knowing that if I do something cool, they might imitate me while I'm doing it. And that, you think that's reinforcing? Could be. You, you, Likely, very Could likely, be. especially if the play continues and you hear, hey, yep. try this. Hey, now you try this. It's now a great we're fade into egocentric parallel interactive play. Go exactly. Ahead. No, exactly. There, there it is. So that egocentricity you speak of, um, especially given some of the developmental profiles that we might see in early intervention, unless you're linguistically mapping and or contingently imitating that egocentrism, you may not be able to procure enough joint attention with gay shift, for example, in order to successfully and, 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 and contextually achieve imitation in a way that's socially significant. And again, the best way to do that is play, especially for young kids. I would say that for anybody, actually, anybody learning a new task. Sure. The moment it feels like work, your motivation dwindles a little bit. Sure. If it just feels like play, 
man, you'll do it over and over and over and over again. So this idea of play as a motivating operation and then the reciprocity and the, the reinforcement, the natural reinforcement that comes from, say, uh, moving in unison with somebody if you're dancing or even if you're watching the Super Bowl halftime show and there's a bunch of synchrony with the dancers. Everybody can find natural reinforcement, interest, engagement in that idea of imitation. And that's all we're basically talking about here is synchrony with somebody else. goes a long way socially. You bring up an interesting point with play as, as we're recording um, in, in your son's room, who I, I got to meet uh, or I got to say hi to um, a little bit earlier, right before we recorded. You know, he's, he's big into music and into the guitar and drums. And if you're trying to get a kid interested in the drums, you probably just want to give him some drumsticks and some drums and let him beat on the drums a little bit or strum the guitar and say, oh, you like that? Can I show you this and this? If I try to give him a sheet of music and a guitar the first time and say, okay, we're going to play this note and this note and this note, probably not going to have an individual that's very motivated by it. Uh, maybe if they if they have the diligence and the perseverance to stick through and then they can see what all of those notes amount to at the end, then they'll stay with it. But uh, I think just like you said, playing in the beginning and then kind of going, going from that is just going to be that much more effective. You also mentioned something else um, that you mentioned, you know, a kid being in the mix and, and playing with the reciprocal imitation. I think you might have added something new to your mix a little bit uh, recently that, uh, that might have in, uh, attributed to even your increased sharpness in this reciprocal imitation. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Dan. You're looking at my little bottle over here. So, yeah. <laughs> your empty bottle. Let's talk about mental clarity and its importance toward productivity. Okay. It seems like everyone desperately wants to do more, to be more efficient. At least that's what I'm always hearing people talk about, especially on their way for that sugar-laden caffeine fix at the corner coffee shop. Somehow that extra dose of caffeine, that second win in the late afternoon, is what people are always after. So I'm going to introduce you to a little elixir that has helped me launch into every day and avoid the late afternoon crash. It's called Magic Mind, and you've alluded to it here uh, before a couple episodes ago. Uh, It's the perfect brew to have on tap for my mental clarity and acuity. Now, don't get me wrong, it has not replaced my morning coffee, but it has assured that I can keep it to one cup of joe and still have all the mental performance, power, and alertness that I need. If you're like me, even when you're doing your best to concentrate on creating content or uh, developing programming for clients, managing the family routine and transportation schedule, trying to get a little exercise into the mix, you're not always 100% focused and you're not always getting everything done as quickly and as efficiently as you need to. Again, I have found what I think is the perfect solution. In fact, I'm lucky enough to say that Magic Magic Mind found me, and now it's my go-to before recording ABA on tap or simply managing the daily grind. I've been trying to find a way to keep my energy level steady throughout the day, and coffee on its own just wasn't cutting it. Thankfully, I found this little shot of brain-boosting magic. We've definitely added Magic Mind to the tap. It's on tap now. So consistently creating new content here for the tap isn't easy. It requires a lot of focus, a lot of energy. It can be hard to balance those two things. Too much energy, and you feel amped up and ready to bounce off the walls instead of feeling dialed in. Magic Mind is soothing and bright and quickly refreshing. I can literally feel an invigorating surge as I take the first sip of this powerful elixir. Being a parent, Dan, takes a lot. And I haven't found anything that gives me energy without making me crash at some point. Again, love my coffee, but that's what it does. Since I've started using Magic Mind, I'm able to keep my energy while not overloading on coffee and getting that uneasiness in my stomach. In fact, my family has witnessed such an improvement to my mental performance and overall mood that my teenagers have begun to enjoy the benefits of Magic Mind as well. And I feel good knowing they're consuming good stuff. Some matcha, some honey, and a whole lot of magic in the form of adaptogens and nootropics and mushroom-based ingredients. So... If you want to boost your brain performance, your memory, your mental acuity, your alertness, try Magic Mind today. In fact, please do look at the episode description to find a link with a discount toward your prospective purchase. I hope you try Magic Mind and enjoy the benefits that I've discovered. Thanks for that time, sir. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's Magic Mind, M-I-N-D, not Magic Mike. That will lead you into something slightly different. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that 
that Channing Tatum guy, he probably wouldn't appreciate that. I'd be stealing some of his thunder. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, stealing thunder, I don't want to steal more of your thunder. So back <laughs> to the reciprocal imitation piece. All right. So let's jump right into the lab procedure. Let's describe this sure. a little bit from the literature, and then we can talk about some of the ways... Um, or from there, we'll see what organic conversation comes from now, taking this into the living room. And this is actually a really friendly procedure that was created. Um, and I think that largely if you start taking some of the prompting away and continue some of the modeling, uh, that's one really good way in which you can deviate from the procedure, but still preserve it enough to know that the empirical validation uh, remains on your side. So uh, again, this is from Ingersoll and Schreibman in 2006. They conducted baseline sessions. These were free, open-ended, child-directed play uh, situations with a therapist. Every minute on average, the therapist modeled an action with a toy paired with a verbal marker. Each action was modeled three times. 20 different actions per session were attempted. So you can see here already the deviation from some sort of a target-based mastery criterion target-by-target approach, right? You're, you're enriching the environment. Each model was kept the same in terms of its verbal marker, but varied across trials. Now, what I mean by that is if the action was to roll a car, the verbal marker could be roll the car one trial and vroom, vroom the next time and so on. Generality. Uh, from the beginning, right? That's the beauty of this. From the beginning, along with joint attention, what you're really doing is you're opening up the level, the idea of gay shift and attending to the entire environment, not just the SD typically being presented right in front of them. So we could say roll the car or make your wheel spin or push it forward, any of those things. Any of that. Make wow. it go fast, 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 fast. Yep, any of those things that are play-oriented speech now become uh, available to you. Not just I want roll car. Right. No, right. Oh, man, we're, we're, that's the next episode, right? The, the dangers of I want, I no. see. Those are the only two uh, first-person declaratives in the uh, <laughs> ABA uh, autistic vocabulary. I want and I see. That's it. And more and open. Well, but we already hit more. <laughs> so more, do this. Definitely strange technologies. Um, so the effort here is to ensure and gain the child's attention by getting into the line of sight and or using the child's name. Okay, so I know we've talked about this a little bit here. One of the things that we did, professionally speaking, with the joint attention piece is we removed response to name programs. Now the name was a very important target under responding to auditory stimuli or more importantly, shifting gaze to auditory stimuli. And we're very, very systematic about that, sort of trying to make it happen behind the child so that that gaze shift is very, very overt. Same thing here as you're doing your modeling and you're tr saying your words, you're trying to crouch down into that line of sight. The idea is that you're pairing your sound with their sights. They can take you in all at once as within reason, right? You, you got to stay polite. You got to stay, um, you know, amenable to the situation, not be awkward, but you're really doing everything to gain that visual attention along with your verbal marker. So you're going into their line of sight. You're not prompting them to look at you. Imagine that. Okay. Yep. That's, yep. that's one of those things that I can think back uh, early in my career and it makes me cringe because I know that I was involved in some similar procedure at some point with a RTN program, right? Yep. Every day we're just trying to get better, a little more humanistic, a little more um, compassionate. And yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, you you know alluded to Lovas in, in the early days a little bit earlier and the idea that um, you know he sort of opened up the, the playing field to say this demographic can also learn. Sure. Quickly implies and very correctly implies that before that, the general social notion was that that demographic could not learn. Yep. So there's a lot of progress to be understood there historically, contextually, and yes, we try to move forward every single day. So uh, lastly, in terms of the lab procedure, no feedback was provided in response to the child's subsequent behavior. So if the child did an action, then you would simply imitate that action or try to now change the action accordingly. So there was no good job or try again as a result to anything they did because outside of maybe throwing the car or doing something dangerous, is there anything that's disallowed in play? Play should be pretty open-ended again within certain parameters of, of safety and, um, and preservation. 
So when you say no feedback was provided, what would the RBT or what was this individual doing in response to the child's behavior? Imitating back, right? So continuing to imitate the child's um, actions toward trying to get them to understand the model they were presenting and then maybe imitate it back. And creating maybe more novel things yes, for them to do as exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah. So 20 different variations had to be presented and those sometimes had two to three different verbal markers. So I think this is one area that we maybe lose um, some case managers um, sometimes is the they really like having some targets listed down so that they yeah. can assure that those targets will be hit. If they're not specifically listed down, then there's a little bit of trust that they have to put into the put into the therapist that they're going to hit a substantial or whatever uh, acceptable number of targets, uh, whether it's the roll or the jump or things like that. There's a level of faith that has to be put into there if they're not specifically task analyzed down there. I don't know if you have anything you wanted to say regarding that. that. That's a very important quandary to mention. I think that my best suggestion to that is, yes, go ahead and predetermine some actions that might seem contextually appropriate to the play that that you want to direct. And actually, I'm circling back to that idea of adult-directed target specificity, the idea that I can make a direct line between something we were doing repetitively and now something the child is expressing or emitting behaviorally. Uh, So that's a really good question you're asking. Again, my best suggestion would be start with your predetermined adult-directed targets. Be ready to add to that list based on what the therapist and or you're seeing from that child in response. So that way, something that's within reason in rolling or playing with a car never becomes a try again. It just becomes something that you contingently imitate towards expanding that repertoire of actions that can now be imitated. Thank you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, in the lab, I think it makes a lot more sense to have specific targets to make sure a child can be taught X, Y, and Z. Um, But in the living room, I, I think the more that we specify targets, the more that those are now eventually going to be decontextualized because those those are the five targets that I want to make sure that I hit. And I'm going to try to contrive those targets, even if it's not appropriate for the situation, rather than follow the child's lead. Because if those targets are down there, I'm not really following the child's lead. I'm somehow going to try to contrive the situation to get to my five targets. So I might be incorporating the child, but it's still not fully child-directed play. And you're nailing a very important point. In the laboratory, in order to have experimental control, yes, it would behoove you to have pre-selected targets. That's just the way it works so that you could replicate those targets across different participants if you're doing a small group study, right? Single subject wouldn't limit you to that. But... I think you're nailing it. You're, na- you're hitting it on the head in the sense that we have a tendency that once we create that adult-directed structure, that is the structure we're going to follow, and it leaves us with little room for spontaneity, let alone this idea of independence, the idea that you might independently choose a play action that isn't part of a predetermined list. Again, play, predetermined list for play, that's no longer play. Now you're following a routine, which is, again, there's a time and a place for that. But we're really trying to preserve the motivating operation of play here, which then behooves us to add actions, uh, sounds that were emitted by the child for us to imitate and then expand and vary toward their imitation. So, yeah, you're you're hitting a very important part here in terms of um, how this can be difficult for uh, us clinicians who have been in the field a little longer who have gotten accustomed or built a good rhythm in in running adult-directed sessions or approaches. This creates a lot of room for child-directed input, and you have to be ready. You have to be on your toes, literally, to... And that's why contingent imitation and linguistic mapping become such an important part. They force you to pay attention. Yeah. Pay attention, absolutely. And you bring up the motivating operation of play, and I do just want to highlight that that literally just means make sure that play is fun and make sure that's motivating to the child and that's our priority. So we're, our priority over anything else is making sure that the play is fun and then the joint attention, contingent imitation, reciprocal imitation, all of that can come as a result of that. But if we're prioritizing our targets over the fun play, we might get some data, but we're not going to get the generality and we're going to lose that motivating operation. And we talk about independence. What about the idea of spontaneity? That takes a great deal of independence as well, and it's a, 
I would say it's a pretty good human trait or good animal trait in general. <laughs> Hard to uh, contextualize spontaneity in the typical SDRSR ABA um, contingency. Another one of those quantifiable versus qualitative pieces that I think we're going to be talking about more and more here on ABA on tap. And it doesn't make um, you know it doesn't make you devoid of data as much as now the data takes a different role, right? Um, again, I, I said it earlier, but in ABA, we tend to plant the seed, we water it one day, and let's go ahead and measure, even though we know it hasn't grown an inch. And let's measure again the next day. Let's measure again the next day, only to keep verifying that there's no identifiable sprout. But we're kind of saying here is, why don't you take a look at the situation, be reasonable about your approach, given that we know that water and sunlight are going to help germinate and, and grow a seed. And then once you see that sprout, start measuring. And do you have to measure every given minute or day to ensure that you know that that sprout went from two inches to three inches? No. The, the simple measurement from two to three will verify that you grew that extra inch. You don't need every half inch in between or every quarter inch. And again, this is all lab to the living room situ- uh, premises that we did very good in preserving, which may over time have decontextualized, uh, sort of taken taking our bedside manner away from us. So we're really, really, really good uh, physicians. We just don't have really good bedside manner when we do things that way, in my opinion. Um, I'm going to continue on very quickly just because we're, we're quickly running out of time. So I want to talk about, we talked about the baseline sessions in the lab procedure. And they broke this down into four different conditions, which you've already alluded to with the idea of novelty. So the first condition would be doing familiar actions with the same toy the child was using. Okay, you could call that parallel play or contingent imitation is sure. basically what that is. And familiar is defined as what the, beha- the behavior the child had demonstrated already spontaneously. Second condition were novel actions with the same toy. So first effort to get the child to imitate, having noticed the examiner by way of contingent imitation. So familiar actions followed by novel actions with the same toy. Now familiar actions with a different Toy. So you see how these repertoires are building with regard to actions and or objects. Okay? Sure. And then lastly, novel actions with a different toy. So the child would have to match the toy, imitate a novel action. This demonstrates the greatest amount of awareness or joint attention to complete the imitation trial as modeled by the examiner. And most importantly for this whole piece, at least for me, is that this matches a typical developmental progression. Recognize imitation, so the contingent imitation, initiate imitation of familiar actions, and then the imitation of novel actions. And this is just a learning trajectory, right? So when we say typical, the idea of normal, those words can be a little bit problematic. Are we being exclusive to something? All I'm saying here, or all these researchers are saying, all we're saying here is, this is a progression which is going to allow anybody the access to learning from their environment through imitation. So whether you've been diagnosed, not diagnosed, this is just a a human learning principle, uh, not otherwise to be interpreted as exclusive or trying to change anybody. And when you say access to learning through their environment, I might just add in access to learning through the least restrictive environment. Yeah, hopefully. Yes, hopefully, especially with regard to our treatment, knowing that we're immediately baking in the child directedness portion, the play based portion. What do you expect kids to do to play? And we come in here and sometimes derail that. Well, what this is saying is, no, come in, you join it, and then you draw out reciprocal imitation toward further programming and further you know, skill building. Exactly. Yeah, the more that we intervene, the more that environment becomes more restrictive. I remember when I was training uh, at a previous company and we were talking about pivotal response training and one of the pivotal behaviors is responsivity to multiple cues, being able to learn in an environment with a lot of stimuli. So what we would do oftentimes is destimuli, if that's a word, remove stimuli from the environment so the individual could attend to us better. Now that environment's becoming more and more restrictive and less and less generalizable. So we're making it more and more difficult for that individual to get put into a more naturalistic uh, school setting or just interact with his parents or siblings at home. Because now every time they interact, it has to be in their specific setting. I, I, that's an excellent, excellent point. And again, the logic is is not lost on us. The reason we were doing that is to limit the amount of stimuli such that our particular targets and SDs could be the prevailing targets and SDs. 
Yes, inadvertently then and collaterally speaking, we were taking away from the enrichment of the environment. We were taking away from the power of generality. We were also taking away stimuli that some of our clients would throw in our faces. Or Yes, we were being practical, but at the same time, there were some risks or some confounds that we were creating toward things like generality, for example. Yeah, and that's where the authoritarian undertones come from, is now we're saying certain stimuli in your environment are more important than other stimuli in your environment, which, to be fair, it happens all the time um, you know, through, throughout life, right? A bus about to hit me, hit me as I'm crossing the street is a more important stimulus for me to be aware of than the bird on the tree down the, down the block. Like there are certain stimuli that are certainly more important, um, than other stimuli and which is necessary in, in education, the way that it's currently working. A teacher will say that this math problem is a more important stimuli right now than, I don't know, you thinking about skateboarding or the skateboard in the corner for recess, um, but again, that's where some of those authoritarian undertones start to come. And we, um, you know, re- re- reference the previous episode where we referenced the Stanford prison experiment, things like that. Obviously, we didn't get to that extreme, um, but there is a slippery slope you get to when you now have the, the power to tell people what stimuli they need to pay attention to and which ones they don't, which leads to the whole masking debate and some of the ABA detractors. I won't get into that. We've talked about that. Let's get back to the reciprocal imitation no, piece. Man, I, I mean, we, we might have to circle back and do an entire episode on what you just said, because yes, the means to an end are very, very systematic, very methodological, very experimentally based, empirically valid systems contributed to our authoritarianism. Why? Because I need you to do this because as the clinician, this will make you quote unquote better. So I need to force you into doing this when in fact we were missing many other ways in which we could do the exact same thing, but just make it look a little bit differently by allowing the child to take the lead a little bit more. Yep. Yeah. That, I mean, we, you, you nailed so many points there. I am going to, uh, in the interest of time, going to move forward to talk about, so we talked about the baseline sessions in the experiment. Um, we talked about the four different conditions and then there are five different phases that were enacted as well. Um, and this is where you can think about doing these things in your sessions. I would say they don't have to be in order. Uh, they might follow some sort of natural order just based on the way learning ensues. But the five different phases would be in phase one, no actions are modeled, but only imitated based on the child's play behavior or any imitable action within reason. This allows you to determine familiar actions and objects. So that's more a contingent imitation. That's phase exactly one. what it is. Or if you want to call it parallel play. Sure. Right. Developmentally speaking. Phase two, you identify familiar actions and items per phase one. Use the same toy and model familiar actions for child to imitate. So this idea is now all you're doing is you're doing the familiar action back and then you're waiting for them to do it. This is their action now. Yep. Right. You haven't changed anything. Phase three, using the same toy as the child, you model familiar and novel actions. Okay. Okay. On to phase four, same as phase three, but you add familiar actions with a different toy or stimulus. Okay. Okay. You see sort of how systematic this is? Lastly, phase five, familiar and novel actions using both the same and different toys than the child is using. How's that different than phase four? Um, so you've got both, uh, you got everything familiar and novel at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So phase four was just familiar actions with a new toy. Ah, uh, gotcha. So phase five just brings it all together. And again, if you think about the way these things are described, you're just playing, but you're playing in a way that has now been planned. It's systematic and you're taking different variables in and out of the action. This is one of the places where we could branch off lab to the living room. This doesn't have to happen in order, but they did it in order in the lab in order to standardize a procedure and then be able to arrive at results which could be deemed as valid. Um, let's look at those very, very quickly. All subjects in this uh, study made gains in spontaneous object imitation. Uh, the imitation maintained generalized to different settings, people, and objects. There were notable increases in language, pretend play, Join attention as a result of this intervention. There's all the soup ingredients we talk about. And for me, of, of, of great, great interest here is naive observers 
found the children to look, quote unquote, more typical at post-treatment, suggesting that the treatment led to global behavior change. That's to say that these kids are out on a playground, these uh, study subjects, you've got naive observers that have never seen any of the children there, and they rate the children based on their activity, different, similar, are these kids you know, seeming to play differently or be withdrawn? At the end of the study, they take a different set of naive observers and then now allow them to, to see the same group of children, at which point now in this study, those naive observers post-treatment did not see any observable difference in any of the kids, meaning that from a play perspective, our study That's subjects huge. here were nicely integrated and just frolicking around the playground. You said a term that I really like, global behavior change. I really, I really like that term. It's the difference between working out and saying, well, I can bicep curl this much and, and I can bench press this much and I can uh, leg curl this much. But how much does that actually help your life? How much are you using those skills? Are you functionally stronger? And that's what that global behavior change is saying. Sure, maybe we could quantify it, but we can say functionally that this child is integrating with their peers and having more holistic uh, benefits to their day-to-day life. At that point in time, it doesn't matter whether or not, to your point, point, you rolled the car 10 times because by rolling it three times, that changes that global mix. So now maybe you're rolling the car down the slide. Maybe the, now the cars are getting dug into the sand. Whatever it is, you didn't have to do it a certain amount of times quantitatively in order to reap the qualitative benefits, socially speaking, if we're talking about play. So again, it's not to say that traditionally we had it wrong. We've just decontextualized it so far that we sort of lost the purpose, in my opinion, especially with one of these strange technologies like do this. <laughs> Remember, it's got to be said like that. I'm not sure if we said it correctly earlier. We were just kind of saying do this. No, 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 no. Do this. <laughs> All right. Just got to. It gets higher at the end. So, which means that now you might be inclined to say roll car. I'm going to advise against that. <laughs> Just play. <laughs> Try not to get into that voice. And I'm being a little facetious, but again, we've become so standardized, so systematic that even our inflection in many ways in delivering SDs has become singular. So. You know when that's really obvious? When we have uh, clients that have peers that aren't on the spectrum and you see them talking to their child with all, or their, their sibling with autism, do this. And you're like, oh, wow, that's... Wonder where they got that from. Hey Dan, good job. Yep. <laughs> good job with that comment, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. So in wrapping up um, reciprocal imitation, it seemed like both the four-step and, and five-step procedure uh, started with a familiar object, familiar action, stayed with the familiar object, novel action, new object, familiar action, new object, either novel action or novel plus familiar action. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's contingent imitation. You're imitating them. They notice you. You start changing first the action, and then you change the object, and then you interchangeably do both. And again, if you just follow that progression from the idea of ego, I love the way you put it, egocentricity, I'm playing on my own, to now I'm playing next to somebody doing things that are similar, to now I am playing with somebody doing things that are similar and or different from what they're doing as we drive the cars around the playground. And what I really like too in, in the um, in the honor of being truly child-led is that if they're not doing what we want them to do, we're not prompting them and say, you need to, if, I, if I'm on step um, three with the new object or even step four with the new object and the new uh, action and they're not doing it, I'm not going to prompt them because that's going back to adult directed. I'm going to go back a phase and do it with their their object until they uh, gain attention. Or I'm going to modify my behavior, not prompting them, not really touching them or anything like that. I'm going to allow them to truly lead that interaction. And that's what, that's what it's become is this dance, as I like to say with staff, this dance between I'm imitating you, you're imitating me. Yep. And then, yes, there's still a time and a place for the prompt, assuming that you've developed or, or that, that your client has, has demonstrated assent and is saying, show me how to do something or I'm Absolutely. okay with you guiding me through this with a prompt. You still have that in your back pocket. What we have found in practice, as you know, is prompts are largely fading away because we're doing everything from the antecedent base on the front end. I can vouch. Yes. I, I've seen sessions like this. Um, you've had me zoom in before and, and it really is amazing to see the level of engagement that the kids have and the level of power. Um, 
And this is literally the opposite of masking. Like kids are just in their in their element doing their thing. And and, in all fairness, too, I should say, as we wrap up here, this is a slower progression than what I had experienced uh, traditionally with ABA. And I I told this to a parent recently who who uh, we got to see this sort of, you know, finalize in the session. And I got to, to look at the parent as well as the staff member and say, you know, all those times that you were imitating those quote unquote weird sounds and or doing those actions that were a little bit unorthodox, this is why. As the child was sitting there imitating the um RBT through a song and had shoulders, knees and toes or something, right? Um and it was it was just really neat to see again all of that happen organically without the need for prompting on the back end, which was something that that traditionally uh you know was a very, very strong premise. The idea that that this was part of the learning, that you had to recreate the exact action based on your target that was already pre-selected in order for any type of uh, positive behavior to occur, uh, this really opens that whole notion up, right? It is much more organic. The child has uh, a lot of say. The child has a lot of control. Um, And what I was uh, referencing back to this, what I was telling that parent is, if you had met me, say, 20 years ago, I, I hate to say it this way, but your child would have more single words than they do now. And she kind of looked at me wide-eyed, and I said, but now that you've met me in this day and age, I guarantee that in another six months or a year, your child will have more words, not just single words, and they'll have meaning. They won't just represent that they're going to get some sort of external reinforcer for having echoed something or done something that they've done repetitively and singularly out of context over you know months and years uh and it was interesting to be able to say that i've actually said that twice now in the past couple months and saying yeah in the old days i guarantee they'd have more they'd be saying red and uh they'd you know be saying more as well as signing it they'd have all this bevy of single words they would not have the awareness and now i assure you they're going to have more than single words they're going to speak And they're going to do so contextually and with meaning and with social relevance. And I I wholeheartedly feel that. And I think a lot of that has to do with us stepping back and looking at things like joint attention and now reciprocal imitation from a much more client or child-directed perspective. That's valuable, man. I I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And it's it's just cool, like the... Like, I keep using the word uh, humanistic, like, element that, that the therapy does now and how... It's just like you're working with somebody. You're not telling somebody what to do. You're working with them as an active member of the treatment program, and it's really empowering. That's probably the best word, empowering. I think that's a perfect way to end this, sir. Thank you for wrapping it up like that. Empowerment. Empowerment is the key here. Absolutely. Or at least one key here. Well, empowerment and? Always analyze <laughs> responsibly. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers, man. ABA on Tap is recorded live and unfiltered. We're done for today. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. See you next time.